Morning, everybody. I'm Matthew, if we've met. We have met. I'm. That's right. Yeah. If I could just say a few words, I'd be a better public speaker. Yes. All those jokes. That's the right response. It's terrible. Um, friends, we're going to look at God's word this morning. It's always a privilege to um, open up the scriptures and, and, and share with you. Um, how about we ask God's blessing on this time um, together? Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the Bible. Thank you that you have spoken through the prophets and ultimately through your Son. Please help us today as we sit under your word to have ears to hear, to have eyes to see, and hearts to love and long for what we ought to love and long for. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I've um, learned about sermons is um, a lot of you are sitting there just waiting for the application, like I just tell you what to do a bit and that's a bit you listen to. Uh, there's something good about that. Um, if you're serious about trusting and obeying Jesus, you want to know what do I have to do to trust and obey Jesus out of this bit of the Bible. That's that, that, that's fair enough. One of the one of the challenges you have um, as a preacher is you come to, and this is a very mixed congregation, but um, th- there's all sorts of different people you preach to, aren't there? Um, if you preach to 15-year-olds and you preach to 70-year-olds, you tend to think there might be different uh, it, how they obey Jesus in their life will look a bit different. So you have to think about how it applies a bit differently for different people. Um, today I've got it easy because it's exactly the same for absolutely everybody. It really is. Um, let me show you 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, and you'll see this is uh, a different part of the Bible talking about the same thing. Is this going to work for me? Who is on? I can't get my slides to work. So off and on again. That's how you do it, isn't it? The first text should just come up. Excellent. Um, I think you had this read last week, didn't you? Um, This is something I think about sometimes. No? Oh, okay. Well, this is before the bit you did last week. Um, It says, Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Physical training is of some value. It's, It's saying something positive. What's physical training? If you read a Bible commentary on 1 Timothy, you'll find out that the commentators don't have a clue. They don't know what it, like, as in, what precisely does this mean? They can't agree on it. That's fine. He, Paul's just being really broad. He's saying there's things you can do to get trained and disciplined in life and get good at stuff. Physical bodily training, you can, you can work your body and that's of some value. You can become fit. You can be healthy by, you can go on a diet. Um, you can go and train. I mean, we've all gone to school at least a bit and learn some stuff and hopefully that helps us with life and that's of some value. It's actually affirming um, being embodied people who can be trained and disciplined and study and that's really useful for engaging with God's world. But it's only of some value. See what it says, godliness is of value for everything. Everything. Um, my wife and I... Uh, like this has gone through my head just recently. My wife and I were dealing with something very difficult and I felt very angry about it and we wanted to go and smash something. And you, I had in my head, godliness is of value for every situation. Godliness is of value for this situation because God knows best and he designed how life's supposed to be lived and godliness is of value for this situation. It doesn't matter what you do, where you're from, what age you are, what gender you are. What Godliness will help you and serve you best in your situation, in every situation in life. Other stuff's just of some value. Of, of some value, positively, 
but a completed of godliness just of some value. Godliness is of massive value. And you notice it's not just that it's a value now. The usefulness of bodily training, physical training, whatever you want to call it, is measured in decades, right? Why do you go to school? Why do you get training in, in, in some job? So you can do a job, so you can go and earn some money, so you can plan for your time. We're talking about things that are measured in mere decades. The value of godliness is measured in eons. <laughs> godliness is just to value your present life today and yesterday and tomorrow. It's a value into eternity. Godliness is something we should all strive towards. We should want it more than anything else because it's a value in everything. That's what we're going to hear from Jesus today. Um, we'll hear about it slightly different words. Here's Jesus' question. Well, it kind of gets to the root of what he talks about in this passage. Who is really blessed? When you think about a blessed person, let's be frank, it's the person who owns the big, best house in your neighbourhood, drives the best car, has the most enjoyable job, the most luxurious lifestyle, the best relationships, the best family, best health, they never get sick, and a lot of money, and life just everything goes good for them. That's the blessed life, isn't it? Jesus wants to challenge that really front and centre. That is not the blessed life. A lot of those things are of some value, but godliness, what Jesus is calling people to strive for, is of greater value. and Actually, it will lead you to turn aside from a lot of those things a lot of the time and to lose those things for the sake of something better. Very often the person that we think is, is blessed is actually cursed. So we're going to talk today about what Jesus wants from his disciples. I want to just describe this idea of um, disciple for a minute because it's kind of like our idea of education but it's, it's actually very different as well. Um, I, I, I've done some teaching and um, well, well, the, the difference is um, in teaching the teacher isn't necessary. The point of the whole of teaching is that the students learn the stuff they're supposed to learn. They need to learn the content. They need to have capabilities, capacities. And if they can learn it somewhere else, well, I don't actually need to be there. They need to pass the exam. They need to prove their competency. And they can learn it without me as the teacher because the teacher is useful, a tool to that end, but not, uh, not the point. The teacher isn't the point. The content's the point. It's completely opposite with discipleship. Discipleship is about learning the teacher, as in what subject are you learning? What's Jesus teaching? Um, ethics and... Um, Old Testament theology. No, no. Jesus is teaching the way of t Jesus and his disciples learn the way of Jesus. They learn to excel in Jesusness. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To learn his way, to learn his way of living, to imitate it, to grow, to be like Jesus. Have a listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 40. Um, a student, he's talking about discipleship, a student's not above the teacher, but anyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. The goal of the person who's fully trained is to be like their teacher, to imitate them, to be just like them. And that's what Jesus is calling those people for when he calls them to be his disciples, to be like him. So they look at Jesus and go, I've got to be that guy. I want to be that guy. If you've got a Bible there, you should open it to page 936, assuming it's the same Bible as mine, which is the one you know in the pews, um, and you'll find a section in Matthew chapter 5 which was read for us called, uh, the, the heading says, The Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5 to 7 is often called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and in the Sermon on the Mount, it's basically Jesus teaching his disciples what it means to follow him. 
Let me give you some context. Um, Jesus has just previously, just in chapter 4, um, called a bunch of fishermen to be his disciples and to learn his way and to follow him. And so they leave their boats and they go follow him. Um, and then some pretty extraordinary stuff happens. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 23, just so we get the context of what's going on with this Sermon on the Mount. Um, it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralysed, and he healed them. This guy's healing everybody. It's amazing. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, where are all those places? I've got a map. Um, you get why this is so amazing. Jesus is up here in the north um, preaching about the kingdom of God. So we hear that people came from Galilee, which is just nearby. That's not so impressive, okay? It's got healing, of course. There's 10 cities, uh, the Decapolis, across the river. So there's people come from there. There's people trekking 150 kilometres to come to Jesus from Jerusalem. It's spreading everywhere. There's people coming further south in Judea. There's people coming from across the river way down there in the east on the other side uh, in the region across the Jordan which is what it says. That's where they're coming from. They're travelling over 100 kilometres, walking there to see Jesus because he's healing people. It's the most amazing show that the disciples have certainly ever seen. And they're amazed and think, wow, what's, we're going to get rich out of this circus. I don't know what they're, what they're thinking. But Jesus is completely unimpressed by his own success in drawing people. He has different priorities than these people. Look what happens next. He's got all these masses of people come gathering to him. And what's he going to do? Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples, the people following the way of Jesus, came to him and he began to teach them. Jesus wasn't interested on putting up a big show that pleased the crowd. He was interested in the people that were there to learn the way of Jesus. And so what he does is he begins to teach his disciples the way of Jesus, that they were to learn to live by the Spirit. And the crowds listened in. Um, you'll notice if you've got your Bible there, you see it says the Beatitudes. It's kind of got a funny title. People heard it called this before, this little proverbial section. Um, it's, uh, the Latin word beatus means blessed, so it's just the blessitudes. Just cross it out and write blessitudes. It's, it's more authentic and it's more Westy, so let's do it. Um, um, but that's what it is. It's the blessitudes. It's the blesseds. Jesus is talking about what the blessed life of the disciple is. And I, I'll, I'll be, um, be honest, um, for a long time, I um, didn't understand what on earth this was about and then they asked me to preach on it and I had to work out what it was about. And I remember in the past going to a Bible study and, and, and coming away on this passage and coming away none the wiser what it's about. I mean, when, who, what are you talking about, Jesus? It just sounds like religious platitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When will they see God? Who are the pure in heart? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Who, when, where? Like, I, I just didn't know what this was about. It's actually very simple. <laughs> Um, Jesus uh, is always talking about the kingdom of God. You notice there's two lines for each beatitude, blessitude. Um, Here's what they mean. The first line in each case is a present characteristic of a disciple of Jesus. The second one is the reward that Jesus gives to his disciples when he comes with his kingdom. Suddenly it all makes sense. This is what disciples of Jesus look like in the coming age while they wait for Jesus' kingdom. They're the characteristics that by the Spirit of God, God wants to work in us to be like him. And so we go through them with that frame of mind and there's this astonishing promise in the second line each time about what's going to be in the future. 
you kind of see how that works. It's just have a look at the passage there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's what we'll start with. So verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for when Jesus comes, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't know if you've ever seen a really poor person. Real poverty means a person doesn't even kind of have a personhood. Um, they don't have any pretensions about their status. They don't expect you to, re- to respect them um, because they don't see themselves that way. They're just desperate. All they do is they put their arms out, their hands out, and whatever good thing you will put into them, they will eagerly receive. That is what it means to be truly poor. Poor in spirit is talking about that kind of poverty in relation to God. None of us have anything that we can do to leverage God to think of us well. We don't have any personhood, no status, no pretension can bear up before a holy God who made us and sees right through us. We are never in a position of power with respect to God. All you can do is hold out your hands to him and say, I am nothing and I desperately need everything you will give me. I need forgiveness. I need your blessing. I need your help. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And that's actually how you become a Christian. Because look, look what it says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hold out their hands in need to God, for this is the kingdom of heaven. What does God put into those hands? The kingdom of God. It's a wonderful promise. I have nothing except what God has given me. You have nothing except what God has given you. If you're a Christian, remember that. If you're not a Christian, realise that and put your hands out and accept it for the first time. Because the way you start the Christian life is the way you continue it. You're always just a spiritual beggar before God and the only thing you own before him is the stuff he put in your hands. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's a wonderful promise. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's a lot of stuff to be joyful of in the Christian life, like a lot of things. Um, we are in the right with God. We have Saviour in Jesus. We have so many material blessings to enjoy in life that God's given us. We're sitting here well clothed and fed. Um, we have a lot of things to be joyful about. But right feeling comes from right seeing. Come right, right, right perceiving. When you see something of what it is, your emotions should follow like in relation to what that thing is. If you see somebody, you're a Christian, you understand what's at stake with, stake with salvation, and you see somebody become a Christian, if your heart doesn't rejoice, I don't think you've just, I don't think you've perceived rightly yet what just happened, right? A person just walked from death to life. We should be joyful at that because you've just seen it clearly. That's the most extraordinary thing. The angels of heaven are rejoicing and we should rejoice too because we've seen it clearly. But if we see so many things in our world clearly, gosh, we'll mourn. We should mourn when we see people reject the gospel above all else. We really should. It is tragic that people would turn aside from the saviour of the world for no good reason. There's a lot of social issues that should break our hearts. I'll just, be, I'll just be controversial. How do you feel about asylum seekers? I don't care about how you want to solve it politically. I'm not a politician. I don't know what all the parameters involved in the issue, but does your heart break for them? People who are desperate enough to put their families on a boat and flee to some faraway country just looking for the kind of blessings we take for granted, does your heart break for those people? Do you mourn for them when you hear of their plight and the, 
barbarous way our government treats them. I don't say I have a solution to that. But if your heart hasn't broken, you haven't perceived it yet. Jesus said, love your neighbour as you love yourself. Think about what you'd want in that situation. It's so basic. (laughs) We'd want the best for them if we loved them. However we think it should be handled politically. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Because when Jesus comes, he will wipe away every tear and he will comfort his awaiting people. There are hurts in the world that I can't imagine how God can sort of, like as a manager, kind of fix it. I I just can't imagine it. But I know our God can do far more than we can imagine. And he promises to. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What's this meekness thing? Meekness is... um, I think the best way to describe it is meekness is having the default setting of gentleness in how you relate to other people. It's very easy to be harsh with other people. Meekness is about having a default way of relating that is gentle and generous towards them. It's kind of it's related to humility, but it's not really the same thing. Um, it was the way of Jesus. Um, Jesus was very meek, but he wasn't weak. We need to not mistake those two things. Meek and weak are not the same thing. Strength and meekness is going to the cross with your enemies jeering at you and not cursing them and praying, Father, forgive them for they know what, not what they do. That's meekness and that's strength and gentleness and compassion and that's what Jesus did. Responding harshly to people's dead easy. It doesn't take any strength. The biggest wimp in the world can be harsh to other people and impulsive and violent. Dead easy. Just let your impulses fly. Having strength of character, being able to be gentle to those when it's hard is, is what Jesus' disciples are to look more and more like. It's worth saying, though, um, meekness isn't going to get you far in the real world. It's not. You're going to lose stuff if you, if you be meek. There's going to be opportunities. People are going to stand on you if you be meek and you're going to be gentle and they're going to take advantage of you and, and, and you can stand up to them. There's a way to do that. Jesus did that in a, in a godly way. But if you really imitate Jesus on this, we're going to often lose out like Jesus did. you just got to count the cost. And then probably goes back to the last one, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. They'll get everything when Jesus returns. Now, chapter 5, verse 6, I think, is the point of the whole section, the Beatitudes, all the blesseds. Verse 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled when Jesus returns. You ever been really hungry? Like really, really hungry? I haven't. I've grown up in a rich country. I've I've experienced some hunger, probably my own stupidity really, but like the kind of hunger where um, there's hunger and there's pain and at some point the line between them just breaks down and they're the same thing. Um, You're really just desperate to get food or drink, as the case may be. That's real hunger. It, it's, it's relentless. It can't be ignored until it is satisfied. You eat or you die. You drink or you die. And that's how Christians are to think and feel about godliness, about righteousness. I want more of that, and I will not be satisfied with less than that. My uh, oldest son, Caleb, is obsessed with Lego. The Lego people, he has Lego taste buds, I tell you. Um, the people who make Lego are very clever, 
what they do is in the box of Lego that he's just bought and spent his parents' money on, they put a brochure, stupid thing, with all the stuff he doesn't have on the brochure. And Caleb will open the box and enjoy it a little bit. Within three minutes sometimes, he's looking at that brochure going, look, mummy, look, daddy, won't it be great when I have that? I'm going to save up and I'm going to get that one. Mate, you earn 10 bucks a week. It's going to be a while till you can afford that. But he just desires it. He loves it. He's a, he's a Lego fanatic. And he is deeply dissatisfied with his present level of Lego. That's not terribly good when it comes to Lego, but that should be exactly how we are when it comes to godliness. We must not be satisfied with where we're at. We should be looking at the scriptures and say, I've got to get me some of that. I am not satisfied with what I've got. I want more of that. I want to be more like Christ. See, think about it like this. Jesus' disciples, the the 12, had the privilege of following this guy around for three years and watching how he relates to other people. And they must have been absolutely astonished. It's just extraordinary how he related to other people. We, We read actually a bunch of times in the Gospels that Jesus' enemies were astonished at how he always found creative ways to speak the truth and not sin, even when they were trying to trap him in really clever ways, really sinister ways. And he always managed to do the right thing. In, in John chapter 8, he could say with a straight face, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And he didn't blush and he wasn't worried about his mummy coming out and saying, well, when you were a little boy, and he wasn't worried about his friends saying, well, you hurt me in this, he had nothing to repent of. He had nothing to say sorry for. And he didn't live a sheltered life. You think maybe if you're a hermit living in a mountain somewhere, you could kind of avoid sin somehow or most of it. You still got your own mess in your own head, but... Jesus didn't live the life of a hermit, though. He was amidst the worst sinners in Israel whilst not sinning himself. And Christians, disciples, students of the man of righteousness are supposed to see that man and have their mouths water for what he's got. Supposed to have your mouths water, your spiritual taste buds going crazy and saying, I will not be satisfied until I am like that man. I want what he's got because I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm learning the way of Jesus. Do you see, it's, it's, it's changed desire. It's your wants have changed. You don't look at a Lego catalogue and dream of what you don't have. You look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and you go, what would I be like if I was more like that? And I know the Spirit of God wants to make me more like that. Please, God, won't you make me more like that? Turn over the page to the end of chapter 5. And let me read you the last verse in the chapter that alarms a lot of people, which is fair enough. Because it's alarming. Jesus commands, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect like God. That's some command, right? Now, I think instantly what we do is, oh, Jesus is exaggerating or he's making a point with hyperbole and you're not supposed to quite take it seriously somehow. Let me Look, people struggle with what this verse means. I'll tell you exactly what it means. I'll solve it for you all right now. Here's the key to understanding this very difficult verse. Jesus is being serious. That's the trick to knowing this verse and what it's on about. Jesus is being deadly serious. Disciples of Jesus, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Students of the way of Jesus, looking to their master and striving to be like him, can be satisfied with nothing less than that. Even though it seems so far off, they just 
thirst for it, hunger for it, want it. They're trying to excel in Jesusness. Now, I just want to, um, as I speak about this, I just want to uh, shove off heresies on both sides, all right? Um, there's, a, there's a thing, the way I'm speaking, perhaps you're worried about perfectionism. Um, basically, it's the teaching that Christians can become sinless now, that you can kind of reach a state of perfection now where you don't sin anymore. And like, look at me, I, I actually don't sin anymore. I've just reached that level of, uh, of holiness in my progression in the Christian life. Um, and some people have thought that very seriously. Um, they claim, you can claim you made it, maybe. Um, it's a terrible false teaching. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, it says, if we say we're without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. Um, and perfectionism's been a problem in sometimes in places. In the, in the 19th century, there was this um, Baptist preacher in England called C.H. Spurgeon that a lot of you probably heard of. Um, he went to a conference and this, this guy was preaching perfectionism in a big way and he's actually saying, um, I've made it. I don't sin anymore. And, and, and C.S. Spurgeon's an argumentative guy, like he'll, he'll get in people's face and tell them the truth, right? But he didn't say anything. It was really strange. Um, but it was a conference where I think he stayed the night or something, because the next morning um, at breakfast, this preacher who's preaching perfectionism was sitting there, and C.H. Spurgeon just got a pitcher of milk and poured it over his head. And the guy swore at him and yelled and was really angry, and, and, and C.H. Spurgeon, he just, he just stood there and said nothing and smiled. Um, Perfectionism, right? Like, I, I, perhaps that's a bit of a smug way to handle it. I don't really like that myself, but um, but it's easy to be smug about those silly perfectionists who think that they've made it or something. There's an equally serious danger the opposite way, and I think we're more prone to this. Jesus says, "Be perfect, as my heavenly Father is perfect." And in our hearts, we say that's impossible. Jesus is exaggerating. I'll just try to be comfortable doing my best as a decent person. And we, we fall into complacency. It's a sin, complacency. It's terrible. The idea that Christian people filled with the Spirit of God can be satisfied with less than holiness. That's not what the Spirit of God teaches us. So there's something that perfectionists get profoundly right, and that is I desperately want to be like Jesus. <laughs> And I will be satisfied with nothing else than being like Jesus. That is profoundly right. The sin of complacency is we shrug our shoulders and say, oh, sinning is inevitable. Let, let, let me let, Just imagine for a minute, you, you, hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? Imagine that you hadn't eaten for three weeks like Dave was saying to us before. Would you shrug your shoulders at the inevitability of not getting food and say, I just can't get food, you know? Like, it's just kind of... I haven't, I haven't drunk for three days. I just, you know, waters, I just might not see water again. That's okay. Your whole body would be crying out for it, wouldn't it? I sinned. It's inevitable. I just, like, it's just how it is. Doesn't your soul cry out, I don't want to sin. I want to be like Jesus. I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. If you don't know that, and none of us know it like we should, we should call on God to give us a heart like that, to want that more and more. I want to be like Jesus. I'm satisfied with nothing less than being like Jesus. Now, Jesus actually, his teaching here is a very careful path between complacency and perfectionism on either extreme, right? So he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's commanding it. He's calling people to that standard and people are to strive for it. God's people are to strive for it. But remember how the Beatitudes work. Go back to chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why are they hungering and thirsting for it? Because they still haven't got it as much as they want. 
Look at the second half of the verse. This is what happens when Jesus returns. For they will be filled. It's, a, it's an amazing picture. Like you just, no more righteousness for me, please God, I'm full. I, I literally can't hold any more. Like that's, that's the picture. That's the only time we'll be satisfied is when we get into God's kingdom and he makes us full of righteousness. Just so we've got the point. Um, here's um, John saying it in one John in a different way. Where's, oops, getting excited with the clicker. There we go. This is 1 John chapter 3, and he says the same point. Um, Dear friends, now we are children of God. If you trust in Jesus, you're part of God's family. Um, And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, when Jesus returns, we shall be like him. We'll be perfect. We'll be full of perfect righteousness. For we shall see him as he is. Make sure you get the second half of it, though. Look what he says. So it's not just, I'll be perfect in the future. All who have this hope of what's in the future will purify themselves now, just as he is pure. See the standard, just as he is pure. You've got the same standard in the here and now. You're going, I know I can't reach perfectionism, but I hate the fact, and I'll use every ounce of energy in my being by the Spirit of God to strive after perfect holiness in Jesus. That's where we need to be. Jesus brings his kingdom, we get fed, or we die first. There is no way... Other than those two things, Jesus bringing his kingdom or we die to satisfy spiritual thirsting and hunger for righteousness. There's no other way. Now, that's the main point of the Beatitudes, and it's actually what I want you to have get out of today. I actually just want you to be dissatisfied with where you're at and call on God to move you forward in longing for holiness and growing in it. So I'll move through the last few there in the, in the passage a little more quickly. Um, have a look at chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Being able to forgive others, being empowered to do that, comes to looking at the cross. Jesus died for our sins. It was uh, the amount of that cost you can't calculate, you can't express. Um, Jesus told this parable about this um, like this rich, uh, this guy who owed a king like a gajillion dollars, and, he owed, and, and this beggar owed him five bucks. And the king went, I'll let you off. I'll be really merciful and generous to you. And the guy's response is to go and beat up the beggar and say, you owe me five bucks. Like he just hasn't understood the extent of the mercy he's been shown. People who perceive, rightly perceive, the extent of the mercy God has shown us in Jesus will be able to show mercy. And so they'll be the merciful, will be the merciful, forgiving others as God's forgiven us. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Um, pure in heart is a very Jewish way of saying it. What we'd say is single-minded devotion. I've got one thing I want in life. I want God and everything he's got. <laughs> single-minded devotion of God. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. For what will they get? Well, they'll see God. They'll be in his presence. They'll be in his kingdom. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. If you live in the first century, um, basically you take on the application of your parent. Um, so if your dad's a, a carpenter, you'd be a carpenter. That's just how it worked. So you imitate your father. You're a son of your father because you do what your father does. God is a peacemaker. He sent Jesus to bring peace to the world. He's the prince of peace. And if we're sons of God, we'll be like our father who is the peacemaker and we'll, in our relationships be people who make peace with others and work for reconciliation and peace among ourselves and among our neighbours. Verse 10. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're going to live for Jesus publicly, if you're going to own up to him in the workplace, in front of your relatives and that sort of thing, it's going to cause some friction at best, time and again. And you, there's going to be some stuff that happens to you and some ways you get treated because of Jesus that you're not going to like. But we can look at this and be encouraged because Jesus says you are blessed when that happens because that's how they treated him. And if it's happening because of him, notice it doesn't say blessed are those who are persecuted because they're Christians who are being jerks. He doesn't say that, right? He says, persecuted because of Jesus. There has to be a good reason for it, that you're actually just living as a disciple of Jesus and seeking to speak about him as best you can. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, what I want you to do today is to leave here with a longing heart. Be dissatisfied with the person you are right now. The Spirit of God wants you to grow more than you are now. Jesus wants you to grow more than you are now. God the Father wants you to be perfect as he is perfect. I hope you want that. The first thing to do, if you're like, I just don't feel that, I just don't desire that, is to ask God to give you that desire. You ever remember that um, there's a guy who um, wanted his son healed and, and, and Jesus came up to him and he's saying, do you believe in me? And the guy's saying, this desperate man, he just goes, I believe, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you know what I mean? He's, he's saying, I just don't believe how I should, but I want to believe how I should. Pray to God, I, I don't hunger and thirst for righteousness as I should, but I really want to. That's the first step. I want to want to it. <laughs> Pray for that first. But leave you deeply dissatisfied with where you are in Christ and hunger and thirst for more of God's righteousness in Jesus. Let's start by um, praying to God uh, for that now. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus that he came and he spoke words of truth to his people and he demonstrated what righteousness looks like in many difficult circumstances. Thank you that by your spirit you change people to be more like Jesus as we await for him to come and finish the job properly. Please help us today to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Please help us to see all kinds of training and things we could do of being of some value and put it in its place though and realise that godliness is of value in everything. Please help us to see the world that way and to see and, and, and for that fact to come to mind um, in situations where it really needs to come to mind. Please change our hearts and enable us to long for Jesus and his righteousness more and more. And we want to thank and praise you for the wonderful promises you give us that ours is the kingdom of heaven, that will be comforted, that will inherit the earth, that we will be filled and with righteousness and shown mercy, that we will see you, God, that we will be called your sons in your presence as we inherit your kingdom. Thank you for these uh, unspeakable blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.